Welcome back to another episode of the Dead Center Podcast. My name is Nick, your host, and today we are joined with Jeff Marslett. How are you doing? Doing great today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, I kind of want to just get right into it and kind of ask you, like, how did you first get into the world of filmmaking? That's a good, uh, that's a good question. Um, I took a circuitous route to filmmaking, I think. <laughs> um, so uh, I did my undergraduate in mathematics and philosophy with minors of the history of science and language studies, like a great books program. I mean, even that was circuitous. That was after I <laughs> went to Columbia, New York, but couldn't pay my bills and ended up the night stalker at Target instead of being able to go <laughs> to the Ivy Leagues because, you know, being poor always makes life a little tougher. Right. Uh, but I came back. Uh, but when I had originally gone to Columbia, I thought about doing filmmaking. That's what I had, had was going there for. Mm. Um, but became the stock boy at Target instead. And... Um, kind of rearranged my thoughts and gets, you know, something practical and ended up studying physics mm. ultimately and working at the Naval Research Lab and going down more of a science route uh, coming out of undergrad. But I didn't want to teach. Um, and the type of science that I was interested in was more of the theoretical stuff. So I loved mm. Feynman and I loved Niels Bohr and Schrodinger and uh, Wheeler and Everett and uh, you know, ultimately all the things that end up in Quantum Cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> Not coincidentally, um, but, uh, you know, there isn't really applied um, applied physics for those. So there's nothing you can do. They don't make an airplane fly. You know, no one's building a, a time machine, which is maybe the only thing some of that's really useful for mm. or, you know, a dimensional shifter. That's not a, it's not a thing we have. So your main thing you can do with that kind of, uh, of study is study it and go into an academic environment. And I wasn't that interested in doing that. So I went back to school for something really practical, like filmmaking, which put an asterisk next to that and tell you guys <laughs> out there listening to this podcast that um sorry to break it to you but getting a degree in film is pretty unpractical yeah. uh, as it turns out so i went into film and uh as circles tend to work and circular ways to get places uh i've now been teaching film at a university for 20 years so i i, I think it's not that i think there's a hand of fate that makes us do what we're meant to do but i do think there are characteristics about us that make us make decisions so the same things that were bringing me towards the type of film or the type of physics that meant i was teaching brought me towards the type of filmmaking that meant i was teaching and i do actually really enjoy teaching so it's this strange mm. cycle as much as i ran away from these things for one reason i came back to it so that's how i got to independent filmmaking was um because i got tired of physics yeah, well, absolutely. And well, I know we'll talk about Quantum Cowboys a little bit later in the podcast, but have you noticed like any other elements in your uh, projects or film or anything where physics is like kind of come into play? Absolutely. You know, the very first film I made that um, I won't say broke through, but I will say that I made a film and then once upon a time. <laughs> I was in Las Vegas, which I've only gone to Las Vegas like twice. It's not really my my jam. I'm mm -hmm. not my thing, but I was sitting at whatever the dollar um, blackjack table because I was in Vegas and I was like, I don't want to lose very much money. <laughs> and uh, talking to the guy next to me and said I was making films and talked about the kind of things I made. And he was like, oh, I just saw this short um, that you would really like. And so he told me this short was Monkey versus Robot. And I said to him, I, I made that. That's my short. To this day, I'm sure he didn't believe me. He was, <laughs> he was sure I was lying, but I wasn't lying. So my very first film that at least got popular enough, a stranger in Vegas at a blackjack table watched it, you know, that I had never met. Uh, it had, it had several million views on YouTube before it got pulled down and we relicensed it and did things. But mm -hmm. monkey versus robot was a short I made right around 2000. I think maybe the end of 99, but 99, 2000, we played it 
at slam dance and being in spike and mike's sick and twisted it was really or not sick and twisted their traditional animation but it, it it at least got out there and people i never met watched it and it's monkey versus robot it was about the idea of science and the idea of monkey you know our our animal side our math side so these same ideas for physics were already in that short and it was a great song this guy james kachalka wrote i mean i didn't even write the song i just did the animation but it's monkeys and robots fighting so it's adolescent in that way but it's also very much some of the same ideas that show back up in quantum cowboys so that was my first thing i mean my my first feature was mars so that was you know two humans um in a race against two robots on their way to the red planet that was actually born of a short i wrote where a a rover on Mars decided to disobey its orders to go save another crashed rover. Cause why would you bother to look at rocks for humans back on earth? And <laughs> the robot needs help on the other side of the planet. So uh, this idea of science and this idea of, of the thing I like about science is exploring ideas and what exploration really means. Um, and frontiers I think is in all of my work mm-hmm. um, back if you know my film i took to sundance in 2019 and also to dead center uh the phantom 52 you Mm -hmm. know is about a lonely trucker who may or may not be a ghost and also may or may not be a whale that speaks in a frequency no other whale can hear i think these existential ideas (laughs) you say are they in your other films i think they're in all of them i mean i think that really um i've told some very different stories but i think they're all coming back to the same ideas that i like to struggle with on film yeah absolutely (laughs) i love that um and kind of speaking of like mars in the the world of indie filmmaking you mentioned uh can you kind of talk about your experiences and what you've learned like in indie filmmaking through the projects like mars and thou uh was uh mild and lovely yeah i mean i think um the really great thing in indie film is getting to make films that would not happen if you didn't make them then, you know, quantum cowboys was nothing that the world was asking for. Um, how and I used to joke that I didn't even care if we copy, we did end up copywriting the script, but I was like, I don't even care if we copyright the script. Cause not only, uh, do I not think someone's going to steal this and make this movie, but I don't think anyone even wants to make this movie except us, you know, they would, <laughs> they would steal it and then refuse to make it. Um, getting to make something that the world wasn't necessarily asking for, uh, that wasn't uh, a reboot, a rehash, a new franchise, a retelling of something else, something that wasn't market tested and tried and true is the beauty of independent film. It's trying crazy, very individual ideas from voices that are mostly not being heard um, in the media landscape Mm. and just making those happen. Um, That having been said, it's, I think one of the most quixotic, ridiculous and stupid things for an artist to do it's it's really a hard hard road and i'm hesitant to say it's too loud in a way it offends any of my friends who are having uh i'll say more success right now even coming out of the indie world but i'll be honest the indie world is moving more and more towards shutting down voices that are truly coming out of left field that are truly brand new and instead championing um call it the genre of indie films which is making it even harder because once upon a time the major festivals were your um were your saving grace mm-hmm. if you were uh, an indie filmmaker that you could make something on one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which is still a lot of money to raise for an independent film I mean, mm-hmm. it's a miracle any independent it's a miracle any film at all gets made but independent films are an even um tougher miracle to perform right but if you raise one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and make a film there was 20 years ago 
a way to play in competition at a major festival to win an award. Um, and the uh, industrial indie complex of today, I think, is making that even more impossible. So these major festivals where you might sell your film, I mean, I'm, it's not to knock in these people, but, you know, Michael Sarah is going to be the breakout director. And mm-hmm. frankly, I think everybody already knows Michael Sarah's name. I don't, you know, begrudge him even one second of, of success. But I will say when the avenues like Sundance are primarily for, um, you know, and South by all these major festivals are primarily for um, A24 produced $30 million films with major stars. Um, that moves the needle to say that an indie film is a $15 million operation with several household names. And for most people that are not coming from a place of economic privilege, you're not going to be able to make those films. So now what you're saying to all those voices is um, all those weird things that I are why I watch indie films to watch something that wouldn't otherwise be made doesn't make it. And frankly, as cool as a 24 films are, they're films that would be made. There's a brand, there's a style that a 24 is presenting and they're presenting it well, but they're presenting it on a budget that 15 years ago would have been considered a, uh, a borderline blockbuster. If you spent $20 million on a film, right. wow, that's a major film and not an indie. So anyway, that's a lot of rambling. Some people are going to listen to this and go, what's Jeff being sour grapes. But what I am <laughs> saying is that I do think that the landscape of indie film has gotten extremely difficult, especially for newcomers. I have the benefit of having made a few films. So, you know, someone will watch my screener. So I'm, I'm also not going to cry too many tears for myself, but I am going to cry tears for um, just somebody who's picked up a camera recently, who's making their first feature, who is in Oklahoma and wants the chance to show his work on a larger, uh, a larger uh, platform. And it's becoming more and more difficult to just come in from out there. You know, the days of Rodriguez and Linkletter and mm. Allison Anders and these things, those days, you know, is border radio going to get a, a platform to be seen? And I think, unfortunately, you know, is Slacker going to get played more than four minutes and then rejected? I fear not anymore um, that, you know, what we're expecting out of Indies is an unrealistic expectation that now is more of a lower budget studio film. And we're calling that Indies. So anyway, I'm rambling on my own personal soapbox there, but I, I think it's an important soapbox because I do think that people who once upon a time made the films that I really wanted to see, are going to run to TikTok and other venues without any gatekeepers. And they're going to put their work there which is great. Maybe, maybe they'll create really amazing things for me. It's sad because I don't want to watch TikTok. Like not again, I'm not, 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 <laughs> that's not the medium for me. I don't, I don't care to watch TikToks, but I fear that the 22 year old kid who might have something to say that I would be, that would blow my mind is going to say it on TikTok instead of saying it on, um, instead of saying it on a major film festival now, but, but, but it's, it's one of the things that makes the dead centers of the world and specifically dead center mm-hmm. i think so important right now is i do think that the upper echelon of a lot of um a lot of indie filmmaking has has got a lot of walls around it right now mm-hmm. uh, and and again for all of you if you're programmers of specials and listening don't blacklist me just no i'm just saying this from a place of love that i love what you're playing but i also would love to see stuff from the field get in places like dead center and tall grass and kukaloris and i mean these these film festivals like that are being run largely by volunteers and people who I think are um, genuinely working extremely hard to bring those voices to places like Oklahoma city. And, um, 
in a time where it's very hard to make indie films and break through in indie films, I can't say enough how much I appreciate the existence of uh, what sometimes gets used as a pejorative, but I don't think it's a pejorative at all of regional festivals. I think regional festivals are doing, uh, uh, are doing the heroic work right now of making sure there's a platform for, um, for half a million dollar features for $250,000 features for $25,000 features. And, um, yeah. So thanks, Dead Center. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you, Dead Center. Um, and you do make a good point because it's like uh, the threshold for like uh, an up and comer filmmaker in these like uh, spaces. That threshold has been pushed, uh, you know, a lot further now with like the budgets, like you're saying, because as everyone knows, the budget is like the filmmaking uh, funding is the hardest part of the job. Um, and so like, it does make you wonder where, you know, some inspiring filmmakers might take their work next, whether that's like a TikTok or a YouTube or something new that might come in the next year or two. Um, it does make you wonder where those new voices are going to come from. I, I will admit that's one of the things, look, I've been a professor for 20 years. Of course, there are the days you get up and like, oh, I'm going to teach a class. It's the same stuff I've already taught over and over again. Do mm -hmm. I want to do that? Well, yeah, that's crazy. But the other thing that happens is I do get to teach filmmakers who are just at the beginning of their journey. And I do tell them when they graduate, and I honestly believe this, um, just as you said, whatever's going to come in the next couple of years. Uh, you know, old man Jeff is still trying to make films the old way. I'm so excited that there are people that are new and their brains new and their ideas are new. And the things that whatever crazy mix of information and growing up made them is new they're going to discover new ways. So I, I also, mm. I don't want to sound like I'm doom and gloom. I actually believe everybody trying these new things. If, yeah, we've gotten to a little bit of a phase where everyone has to have this much money to make films. There's going to be, there's going to be a wave back. We're going to fluctuate and someone's going to find a way to crack this open again. So yeah, right. I'm excited. Exactly what you were saying. I'm excited to see what, what those TikTokers eventually do. What somebody who invents a brand new platform or a way of getting movies, movies out there and monetized. I want to see what they do. It's, it's all pretty exciting. No, absolutely. And so I want to ask you kind of going from, you know, indie filmmaking to uh, you know, kind of taking on like several roles in that. What is like your personal favorite role to take on in filmmaking? Is it directing, writing, or maybe something else? Um, well, you know, it's funny you asked about that was mild and lovely too, where I was just an actor uh, for Josephine Decker, mm -hmm. another film, but the world wasn't asking for that movie. You know, mm -hmm. Josephine just did it. And I'm, super proud to have been a part of that um there's always the joke people say what i really want to do is direct um i think having been a director as long as i have and the sort of demoralizing weight of knowing you're going to spend years on something and have to raise the money mm. and make it and you know quantum cowboys is 100 percent fresh on rotten tomatoes there's, it's never i don't know how we'd ever imagine making our money back i don't you know we're not going to get out there in the world because you have to have someone has to open those doors. So we're out there, but we're going to have to do it the, you know, the indie band way of, you know, Gary Farmer selling Blu-rays out of his trunk, <laughs> traveling with the film. Um, you know, so all that stuff is pretty, pretty rough going as a director. So I often say when they're asked like, what do you really want to do? And I'm like, what I really want to do is anything except direct. And I kind of mean that um, I'm mm -hmm. producing on a new film for Skinner Myers and I'm loving that um, acting acting's the best. If I had to really say, what do I like doing? I went to Josephine Decker's film for a few days. Um, I went away. She toiled on it for a year and a half. The movie played at Berlin. I got to go to the Berlin Alley Film Fest, stand on stage, and people told me I was great. And I'm like, wow, this was so much less work than staying up till 4 a.m. for two straight years animating my own film. So um, I'm sure I've got the bug that I don't, when I say what I really want to do is anything except for direct. 
I'll keep coming back to directing because I like doing it. But I, I would say that sometimes acting is the best because you micro direct, you you micromanage one character and you direct that one character in the film mm-hmm. and you be that character. And then someone else does the, the real grind of day to day. So um, for everyone who's listening to this too, and they're like, I really want to get into making films and being a director. There's a bunch of other jobs. And sometimes they're even more satisfying because all the weight doesn't land on you, but some of the creative participation does. So anyway, I like the jobs. I like below the line people. I think they're doing, they're doing hard work and, Sometimes it's it's a happier lifestyle. Uh, all that having been said, I like, as I said at the beginning of this thing, I want to put out films that just wouldn't exist if I didn't. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you don't take on the challenge of writing and directing, those things still won't exist. So, what do I really like to invest? Maybe it's directing, but maybe it's acting. So I like that too. Yeah, I love that. And you mentioned Skinner Myers. It's kind of funny because uh, I actually met him at uh, Dead Center a few years ago and was able to see his film and hear about what he has coming up. So um, he's a very, uh, very, very talented filmmaker. I'm excited to see what he what he does going forward. Yeah, Skinner's amazing. Very good friend of mine. I'm actually, that that dinner meeting that I have to go to when we get off of this mm-hmm. uh, this. Uh, podcast is actually with Skinner. So that's who I'll be seeing right after this. Um, oh, nice. But uh, he just finished uh, he just, his new feature. We just wrapped it up and are about to send to some festivals, and hopefully find a good placement for it. But I, I, again, I actually get to act in a scene in Skinner's new film, which mm. is great. Then worked as producer. And simultaneously, we are now raising money for a new feature that uh, he wants to go into production in later this year, uh, which again, I'll play a small role in that. And I'm helping him produce that as well. So um Indie film is also building a community. You don't mm-hmm. have the money to just always hire people. So you know you're going to do more work than what you're getting paid for. So you do it with people you believe in. And I believe in his work. And I also just appreciate him as a human being. So when I think about who would I want to, who do I want to break my back? I mean, literally this new film of his, uh, Before You Fade Away, Before You Fade Away Into Nothing, that we just finished. Mm-hmm. Part of my job as producer was carrying, um, we just shot all in 35 millimeter, part of it up at 13 and a half thousand feet in the snow. So I'm carrying a 70 pound ball head for a tripod up and down the mountain. Like mm. do an indie film. Would I do that for everyone? Not necessarily. Would I do it for Skinner? Absolutely. So. No, I love that. I love that. It really does. Uh, on our last podcast, we were talking about indie filmmaking and, uh, I recently did like a short film where it was like only three days, but every day was like an overnight. And we we're talking about how like those kind of scenarios where it's like, you know, it's just like, it might be tough on paper, but it's like, it does, um, make you appreciate those other creatives that you're like, you know, creating this baby alongside and also kind of ends up making, uh, it feel like a summer camp kind of vibe or something. You just get, get really tight knit. I mean, it's, this word gets thrown around a lot. So this would be not necessarily a fair way to throw it around, but I'll just use it and everyone out there in the audience, forgive me, but it's sort of like a shared traumatic experience. When Mm. you make a film, it's difficulties, it's challenges. It's not knowing if it's going to work. It's emotions personalities fighting with each other. Um, That can be hard. That can leave a certain kind of PTSD on you when you make the Mm. film. But when it works, when you're happy with the results, it also is a bonding, just like you were saying, those are people, when it does work, those are people that when they don't let you down, when you see what they're trying to do, even if they're not your best friends, but you admire their creativity, their passion for this, their work ethic, whatever it is you find in those people you work with that is really admirable, you want to work with them again mm. because you have that shared experience, that shared bond. So I think you're absolutely right. Um, and 
really until people dive into trying to get to a film, I think it's hard to understand how close that bond really can become with your crew. So, Oh, a hundred percent. Um, and so I guess I want to, I do want to ask you now, uh, for those in the audience that may have not seen it yet, can you kind of describe your film quantum cowboys and what it's about and what people can expect? Yeah. Um, I think the best description I can give of it is listen to my description, read others if you want to, but, um, no amount of describing is really going to tell you what you're about to see. Um, it's an experiential film that until you sort of sit through it and realize that the plot matters, the plot is a big part of it, but this experience of watching this film is also reinventing the wheel of a film. So if I just described it, I think you're going to imagine something different than what you're actually going to get. <laughs> um, and as I tell people, for some people that's going to be what they wanted and they're excited. And for some people it's going to be a bad fit and they're not going to necessarily like the film. But what I can promise is if you come out of Quantum Cowboys and you didn't like it, it is most likely a brand new thing that you didn't know that you didn't like until you watched Quantum Cowboys. So at least I'm giving you that. But at its heart, it is a story of two, uh, two cowboys in the West, uh, essentially traveling across southern Arizona to prove each other wrong. And they team up with Lily, um, who just wants to get her land back and is looking for connection in this world. And so you watch the three of them take this adventure to look for a mysterious musician that may or may not be dead. Um, that's the plot. But what's it about? You know, it's about where I started my journey. It's about physics, you know, uh, in particular, Hugh Everett's many worlds theory, uh, which um, basically what the multiverse is based upon. But the multiverse is pretty like if you threw away all the scientificness about it and just made it a plot device in the many worlds is a <laughs> in our physics that's probably true about the universe. Um, not that I dislike seeing, you know, 20 Dr. Strange's or Spider-Man's or whatever, <laughs> but, but for the most part, you know, uh, if you show those to a physics class, they're like, that's great. Hot dog fingers. Eh. But I was very happy, you know, we're in Munich and they watched a physics class actually came and watched, um, uh, quantum cowboys and like oh my god this is the closest to what we've been talking about in class that i've ever seen it's not an accident i did think about the the physics implications of what that means and really where the many worlds theory came from niels bohr and then schrodinger and even as far back as looking at things uh like lucretius and the idea of the swerve um in you know ancient roman uh philosophy so this idea that the many the, the multiverse comes out of many worlds. The many worlds is really based on the potential energy of all these different universes having the possibility of existing. Um, though when observed, one of them ends up being the one that does exist and extinguishes the other realities. So you don't have 10 versions um, mm. all on the loose. Once you have to pick one until you have to pick one, you can have all these infinite versions on the loose, but the observer, the observation, the act of observation really does affect the actual outcome. And that's a hard thing to cinematize, which is what I really wanted to do with this film. Uh, the thing I loved about physics, still love about physics, is quantum physics in particular. Suddenly math and ideas can prove things actually in the physical universe around you that are contrary to your senses. So you spent your whole life trusting your sight, your smell, your hearing, that these, this is what how the world works. And then I can do some math for you and say, you're wrong. That's not how the world works. It actually works this other way. And the math is right. And, you know, worst case scenario, you can build a bomb based on that. You know, you can really prove that your senses were wrong. This is what's really happening in the universe. Um, to some degree, whether we've proven it or not, and I'll say we've proven it 
just the tip of the iceberg proving it, but I'll give you that example in a minute. Even time works this way. So our idea of what is time, I personally believe is very confused by what are the senses of a human. So the same way we're able to sense light waves into colors and things in our brain, whatever we are, whatever consciousness is, mm-hmm. understands time in a very human specific way that may have nothing to do with what time really is doing in a physical way. Um, I tried to make a film about that. So the timeline doesn't matter in my film. And I wanted the film to feel like while you watched it, that you're sort of getting a glimpse into this other world. And that's like a hallucinogenic drug. I want the film to feel like, wow, I just took this weird drug. And now I'm seeing all these other things about the universe I didn't see before. And that's really cool. But at the same time, it also means all the things you counted on get yanked out of under you. So now you're stumbling home kind of drunk and confused. I think the film opens that door to say, look at all these new things. But I also think it makes you doubt everything about knowledge that you've already thought was in knowledge, which brings up the other part of what I was trying to do with the film is really decolonizing the idea of knowledge. We come to the idea of facts and history and knowledge from a very specific spot. And I wanted to push that entirely out of the way. Um, So we used a Western because the Western I think is maybe the most indelible case of art replacing history. um, At least for us as people living in the Western world, you know, Mm -hmm. when you say, when someone says, if you go to Europe and say Texas, they see a saguaro cactus. They see a guy from California in the deserts of Spain with Italian music playing. It has nothing to do with anything <laughs> like that. Um, but it's become such an indelible image that that's what we think of as the West. And right. I love those. I don't want to remove those. But I want to remind people that our, our, every one of our biases about what truth and history is affect the way we look at everything. And if you throw that all away... You get a tapestry. So this film is very disconnected in that way. It changes formats, different animation styles, each represent different points of view. So I want someone to be able to watch this. And instead of seeing 10 different Spider-Mans, you see one Frank, you see one Lindy, but you see them from 15 different universes. So I really wanted to pick the audience up. And instead of saying, here, look at Lily Gladstone five different ways, keep looking at the same Lily Gladstone, but I'm going to make you look at it from this universe. And then I'm going to make you look at it from this universe. And then this universe, I'm going to take all those pieces and assemble them into one montage, not montage, collage, one collage like timeline. So that's what I attempted to make the film about. <laughs> I, I love that. I'm glad uh, on that last point, because I wanted to ask you, like, this is one of the like most unique visual storytelling films I've ever seen. And so I'm glad you explained that, like the different perspectives of it, because it does. Um, I don't want to give away too much for those who haven't seen it, but it is a very like ever changing, you know, visual style throughout the whole film, and it really keeps you on your toes in kind of the best way. I, I really enjoyed that uh, that element of it. I mean, you know, some people again aren't going to like it, and one of the complaints I won't, I'll never say who these complaints were. Someone uh, complained about because he said the problem with the film is it takes till the the very last scene before the film makes sense. That's great. I mean, I, I want that in the world. I want to stumble into those films. This is absolutely not the film you're going to get in the first eight minutes. This is a film that you're going to get to the last scene and you're going to say, I think I understood the first three scenes now. I kind of think I know why they're there. What I will promise to all of you who listen to this and then go see it, it might be slow. It might be obtuse. It might be confusing. I'm willing to take my <laughs> from people who don't like it, but it's not random. It isn't just a random bunch of things. Mm-hmm. There are, if anything, it's the opposite. There are I have whole flow charts to this. There are uh, extreme rules that I wasn't allowing myself to break in making the film. And if you do watch it or buy the Blu-ray and watch it four times, I think you can figure out who each of these animation perspectives comes from. I think you can start to at least get the satisfaction of being like, wow, I didn't get that the first time, but it, it was in the film. So 
again. It's for someone who wants to watch a film a fourth time and be like, I think I'm starting to understand this. <laughs> That's the beast for good or bad. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. And I have to ask, especially, you know, uh, with uh, Oklahoma film and where it's at, like you mentioned, Gary Farmer, who is on Reservation Dogs here in Oklahoma, and Lily Gladstone, who is in Killers of the Flower Moon and Reservation Dogs. Uh, what was it like working with her? Amazing. Yeah, we, and I'll, I'll give a shout. Kyle Gordon's also on Reservation Dogs. So yes, yes. A bunch, of, a bunch of our cast were in Reservation Dogs. Yeah. Um, they like their Oklahoma. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Lily's great. So I've known Lily for about 10 years, and um, I actually first saw her in – uh, Alex and Andrew Smith's uh, film, Winter in the Blood. Uh, she has a small scene in there. Um, I love their movie. It's a great movie. Best part of the movie was Lily Gladstone. Mm. I told when I met Lily after the screening, I told Lily that was the best part of the film, even the small <laughs> part. Um, and that's in no way a knock against the rest. I also was at Sundance and watched uh, Certain Women with Lily Gladstone. And great movie. Best part of the movie was Lily Gladstone. Mm. Um I was at Cannes with Lily for Killers of the Flower Moon. Great movie. I think the best performance I've seen from Leonardo DiCaprio in a long time. I would still say the best part of Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> There's so a theme. Yeah. It's, it's always hard to be the best performance in a film. But it's easier to be the best performance in a film where the other performances are okay, you know, or bad. Mm-hmm. Lily has somehow continued to be the best performance in films where the other performances were great. That says a lot about Lily's ability to perform. I think it's because she has, I mean, she's a great performer, but among the many things, she has a really um, uncanny ability to understand a character with just enough input from you as the director or the writer. And then she takes it and says, okay, that's how much I need. And she builds a very fully formed character that she inhabits. And when she does this, her performances read as um, extremely honest, extremely real, on the screen. And I think she's largely been used in more serious roles for that reason, because that's a hard thing to accomplish. Um, I hope some people watch my film and also enjoy the fact that I think this is um, really the one case of Lily Gladstone where she's gotten to play. A, I mean, this is sci-fi. This is comedic. That's not really what she normally gets using those skills. Mm. I like showcasing that those skills of hers are just as amazing when applied to this type of character that then feels really real. And you want to see, you want to see her in the sequels to this because you want to see where that, where that human being evolves to. Um, So she is, uh, you know, as an actor, I would definitely describe her as a collaborator with the writer and director. She does so much work to make that character real. And she really, you know, I'm not saying she doesn't take direction. If you're like, okay, we need to change this by all means, she's a dream to work with in, in every possible way. And she's a hard worker, but the one that just, um, kind of blows your mind is how much she brings that character to life. So I wrote this mm-hmm. part for her, having known her for years. I wrote the character of Lindy specifically for her, hoping that that would be, uh, you know, that we'd be able to work it out and have her play the character. And obviously that did work out. And, uh, you know, I'll forever be thankful for that opportunity. No, that's that's fantastic. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And uh, I also you wanted uh, or you mentioned this uh, earlier a little bit, but can you kind of talk about your personal experience with uh, coming to Dead Center in past years and just kind of uh, how you, you would describe it to other people? Yeah, I mean, Dead Center is great. And I feel I, I actually missed the year that Quantum Cowboys played because I was working in Europe and I was coming back from Europe the very day we played. Had, it, had we played one day later in Oklahoma, I would have made it. Now, mm-hmm. Lily was able to be there in my in my stead, and we actually won an award, and then I felt extra like, oh, I wish I would have 
<laughs> I loved I love coming to Dead Center, so I would have really loved to have come to Dead Center and won. <laughs> while yeah, I was there. yeah, you know, I was glad Lily got to Lily sent me a nice picture of her holding the award that we got, so I was, was thrilled. <laughs> uh, but you know, and I kind of hinted at this early on. Um, festivals like Dead Center are sometimes regional festivals are just about bringing films from you know some of the major festivals to town so that audiences that don't normally get those can see them. And I think Dead Center does also fill that that void. You know, they're bringing in films that people in Oklahoma City might not otherwise get to see. But I do think that Dead Center goes that extra mile that my favorite regionals do, which is saying, okay, we're going to mix the expected indies that we're going to bring in for this festival with films that are world premiering here, with films that have only played a few small festivals. And we're going to spend the money to bring in those creators. So your community also gets to see the side of indie film that is um, working class. That's those of us that are like doing a day job so that we can still pay for this film and put it on the screen. And then we can talk to the people there about it. And that's a smaller jump from the audience to where someone like me is sitting than the jump from someone in the audience to, I don't know, an Ari Aster film or whatever else might Mm -hmm. come in. There's, there's a much shorter distance between me and them as far as where we're at. And again, for me, what's most inspiring if I see someone doing something I could maybe do, it makes me want to create. And I think that festivals like Dead Center, first and foremost, the most amazing thing they do is they light that spark. They light that fire in people in Oklahoma City because they see people not that. It's cool to see Oklahoma becoming such um, such an epicenter for all of that. So No, absolutely. Uh, That's great. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. Yeah. The final deadline for the 2024 Dead Center Film Festival is February 7th, 2024, with a final extended deadline of February 15th that'll include heftier fees. Apply to the Oscar-qualifying Dead Center Film Festival at deadcenterfilm.org today. This podcast is sponsored by RK1 Studios. Thank you to Randy and Matthew for providing audio services in order to record this podcast. Check out their services at rk1studios.com. The Dead Center podcast intro music is provided by Aaron Newberry of Kid Again Music. Check out Aaron's music at Kid Again Music wherever you find your music on streaming. 